Jan, how many ways can you think of when it comes to our use of the word deep in conversation? What, mm. what comes to mind first? Deep what? Fill in the blank. Deep ocean. There we go. Well, my book today is entitled Deep. It's actually a picture book, which is a great thing for radio. And it's written and illustrated by Jess McGeechan. That's a good Scottish name, laddie. Well done. And it delves into the depths of a range of interesting domains. So, Jess, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you begin, of course, with the deep sea. That's the one Jan automatically <laughs> thought of and most people think of. But there's several levels to the deepness to which we can go in the ocean. There is, and I think we have to thank English for being such a lazy language that we do have all of those amazing um, iterations. So it does start with deep ocean, but then it works its way into the deep Amazon. It works its way deep underground into deep earth. Um, we go back in time, in deep time. We look at deep space, and then we go deep inside into the human body. So, But what are some of the levels in the deep Sea. Oh, in the deep sea. Well, my favourite one, and I, I wish I could show pictures, but I like the kind of the abyssal zone and the hadal zone. These are the darkest parts of the ocean. I've heard of abyssal before. How did hadal? Do you know? I don't, I don't know the origins of hadal. It's it's it's. I assume got some kind of. They normally got some Greek or, or Latin kind of meanings behind them. Um, I should know hadal, but um, yeah, that's that's what something something really for weird. the listener yeah. to to research <laughs> there. But here we go. Some of the creatures that you've illustrated here have very large mouths. They do. Why I, is that? I think the rule of the deep is lunch doesn't come along very often, so you've got to have a big mouth to fit in as much as you can. But I believe it comes prepackaged down, even in the Mariana Trench. It, it does indeed, yeah. No, there's some... Um, if, if something's going to fall down to the bottom of the ocean and, and decompost, that's going, to be, um, that's going to be lunch for a while. But we've also got plastics. We do have plastics, yeah. And, and that's the kind of, you know, the wonderful thing about these deep places is they're not separate from each other. So, you know, what you do on the surface will eventually make its way down there. So there's all these kind of horrible microplastics that are, have been found on the, the very deepest parts of the ocean, those, those trenches. Which is quite frightening. It is. Actually. It is. Yeah, no, it is. You've then got the deep forest and I love the animals and plants and the things we normally think of, the understory, the canopy. I think people... <laughs> are familiar with those, but what has me intrigued here are the ants. Oh, the ants. The ants are wonderful. And um, uh, these these kind of amazing Amazonian um, ants, that leafcutter ants that build these huge underground colonies. But it's not leaves they eat. No, it's it's fungi. It's um, it, that omnipresent thing that's been there since the age of the dinosaurs and, and they can, you know, the right type of fungi can affect their emotions and, and can take over their but, senses. Well, here we go. Yes. We get something that often makes for good television, a series on, on uh, people turning into zombies. But that actually exists in real life. What have you got? Very much so. So, yeah, no, these these kind of, um, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but these these corsiceps, um, which, are, you know, the, the fungi that, that kind of, um, you know, uh, can can grow in and around these ants and, and take control of their actions and, and kind of yeah, and tell them what to do. You've got some lovely basket stink horn, uh, clyter Oh, I can't even... Uh, no, don't <laughs> even worry about A Azura. lot of weird and wonderful fungi. And, you know, some of them are, you know, there's, there's bio, bioluminescence fungi, which is, you know, which glows in the dark, the same thing as the fish in the deep ocean. So these worlds start to kind of, you know, come together. Well, it's an intricate uh, world. It was actually used... Um, Gregory Day's novel used fungi as a, a, a sort of image of... Uh, 
things that are interconnected. We get the deep earth and you've got all of the, um, well, rocks, uh, the treasures, the minerals there. But here we go. We, we start to become a little subterranean. We've got life occurring in caves and the like and our history or humankind mm. has paintings on the walls but you have animals now and this is where it starts to get <laughs> intriguing because we've got the regular animals like the wombats um how did you find out about the burrowing owl oh, that, that- the burrowers are fantastic, and it's probably a good time to say that I actually work at the museum. So not not as a um, not as a scientist, but as somebody that um, has a lot of amazing scientists around them. So we have we have a lot of specimens of these animals actually. So yeah, um, burrowing owls are amazing. Rabbits, foxes, anything that's you know, I, I love the contrast between our underground burrows and that of the animals. But here we go. We've got animals, but humankind is starting to become more subterranean, which is basically where this section leads on to. How many ways are we living underground? Oh, m- more, many more. And it's, you know, as the climate changes, uh, so so too do some of our houses. Um, and, you know, looking down at those levels, starting with, you know, the underground subways, but then the secret bunkers, all the kind of, all the way down to the sort of sewerage systems and, and below. And, um, yeah, I, I love that deep time interacting with this these deep places as we discover things that have been there the whole time. Um, one of the more grotesque ones, of course, is the fat bird. Oh, I do love a good fat bird. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to work on an exhibition about um, gut microbes a couple of years ago. And, and, and uh, fat birds are essentially the, the kind of, the leftover bits and pieces that don't decompost like wet wipes and they congeal into giant uh, icebergs that aren't made of ice but fat and grease that, that and clog up, up the sewers <laughs> but uh, part of the subterranean sort of ecosystem indeed, that we have. indeed but here we go again a lot of our archaeological history is deep underground not just um the skeletons of um, dinosaurs and such like, but if I can say more recent history, uh, human history, uh, artefacts are now Absolutely. underground as well. And you've got a whole section. Well, of course, you've got the, the uh, Viking ship, the Osberg, Osberg uh, ship there. Um, deep time is the next one. So a lot of what we know about ourselves extends well and truly over quite... A period of time. Absolutely, yes. That we have there. Um, but here we go. Deep space. Now, that's sort of a counterpoint to deep sea, but it opens up a whole other world. Very much so. And it's kind of, it's about those layers, really, I suppose. And, and you just spoke about the underground, the layers kind of beneath us, but then you know, kind of thinking about the layers out towards space as well. So I, I love, um, especially in children's fiction, I think often we feel like we have to have all the answers, but I love asking questions of the reader as much as anything and, and putting in all the stuff we don't know. But you've suggested here something that's a bit abstract life soup the soup of life is a very complicated recipe take a planet and make sure it orbits a sun at just the right distance not too hot not too cold getting into sort of the um the little red riding hood effect here. <laughs> add oxygen carbon hydrogen and wait several billion years and cross your fingers and so this all this suggestion about human life and where we're heading and how we're looking at ourselves from a totally different perspective Absolutely. And those kind of um, metaphors and similes are such a good way of, um, you know, putting complex uh, ideas into a, into recipes for kids, which I really like as but well. But to get kids to think about 
those sorts of concepts. But what I like next, and something I hadn't even thought of, um, deep inside. So you've gone deep into the sea, deep underground, deep into space, but then you actually go deep inside us or deep inside people. Um, what was the th thinking there? Again, just that lovely contrast between, and I wish I could show photos on the radio, but if you look at a, a photo of the universe or these kind of models that they've made, they're remarkably similar to the same of cellular, cellular networks in our own bodies. So, you know, th these kind of things that, that feel completely at the opposite side of the um, universe are actually remarkably similar in the way they work. So um, I, I did want to finish with microbes just to remind um, my young readers that there is, um, you know, entire universes happening inside your own body. Well, that's, that's one of the suggestions that you make, that there are more microbes in your body than there are stars in the Milky Way. And so um, now everything starts to, well, coalesce in a way, because having gone into the human condition or people themselves, little uh, microbes, cells, um, lactobacillus, methanobrevibacter. Um, again, lots of things and words I can't even pronounce or I'd need a, a medical degree. But you have then, the book ends on this notion of deep connections. And you actually bring... All of these elements, space, time, human condition, see, all together. So, for example, why is NASA studying deep sea vents? Well, I, and this is the thing, and, and more people have been to the moon than have been to these deep sea places, but, but they look at some of these environments to imagine what life on other planets could be like because this is where this is where the uber bacteria lives. This is the deep sea vents are some of the most amazing places that we've got. So, you know, by looking at some of these places that are far from our reach um, but not as far as other places, we can kind of start to draw maybe connections between what's happening here and what might be elsewhere. But also the interconnection here, microbes living in your gut can actually affect your mood. They so, can. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of that interconnection. Um, so we've also got to think of then what we will leave behind, what will be the traces of our time on Earth and will it get buried and someone dig it up later um you know how i mean there there's even fungi in our there is yeah no that that makes up a huge proportion of our our gut kind of um gut garden uh, is a nice phrase that i that i've heard um so yeah it's thinking about these these deep places but also thinking about what we do has an impact on them even if we don't see it but right across galactic in many Absolutely. ways in, in terms of all that connection Absolutely. Now, you mentioned you work for the university, and I've had... Oh, the museum. Uh, the museum, <laughs> the university, the, sorry. It's all very connected. <laughs> the museum. I've had, we've had Chris Flynn oh, in. Oh, Chris is lovely. And sort of anthropomorphism mm. and, and some of these skeletons coming to life, etc. What's your role? Uh, at the museum, I'm a uh, graphic designer, so I get to kind of design a lot of the exhibitions and the text that you see around you. So, yeah. Oh, right. And basically, you've brought them together in in this book pretty much yeah no it's and it's funny places like museums that we we tend to separate things into different cabinets and rooms but really they're they're closer together than i think we think they are well all of that interconnectedness and that use of imagination absolutely. as well is incredibly important absolutely and this is your first non-fiction? It is my first non-fiction book. So I, I've had a few uh, 
picture story books or fiction books published before this. So this was a really fun way to kind of, I mean, I guess delve into truth more, but also kind of keep the, you know, what I love about fiction is that you can you can use that language to create a world that we don't always see in nonfiction. So I hope there's a bit of a bit of both in this one. And I'll let the listener in on a little bit of see, a, a secret and you as well, Jan. I think this is Jess's first radio it's my first radio interview (laughs) it's very fun going going deep into radio so the book is actually called deep dive into hidden worlds um jess mcgeckin uh did i get that correct you got the yep yep second time was perfect (laughs) the second i didn't get the the first time i think it was a bit more mcgeckin-y but i i get a lot and i don't mind i don't mind we we get there eventually and it's now who is the publisher i can't see uh, this is published by welbeck who are an well amazing publisher yeah and thank you very much for coming in thank today. you very much for having me jan well i'm going to talk about something completely different <laughs> flinders lane in melbourne is where the rag trade with its frocks coats lingerie was centered for many years many migrants joined the companies especially after the war in sydney There was a similar garment industry in Surrey Hills, and that is where Amanda Hampson has set her latest book, The Tea Ladies. Welcome back to Published or Not. Thanks for having me, Jan. Well, it's 1965, and Empire Fashionware has its problems. Who owns it? It's owned by uh, Mr Carp Senior, referred to as Old Mr Carp by the staff, and his son, Frankie, Frankie Carp. Uh, there's also Old Carp's granddaughter, Pixie, who has started there as the Girl Friday, as we used to be called back in the day. A Frankie Carp is married. And I'm going to get Amanda to read just a little bit. The design side of the business is Frankie's responsibility, which is probably why Empire Fashionware continue to manufacture the same garments that they did a decade ago. He and his wife Dottie enjoy the high life and perhaps the business seemed boring by comparison. Her hair always lacquered into a concrete coiffure. Dottie seems to have a limitless wardrobe of colour-coordinated suits, hats, gloves, handbags, shoes and lipsticks. She only sets foot in the building when she needs a cheque for the hairdresser, milliner or dressmaker and certainly wouldn't be seen dead in an empire frock. (laughs) Okay. So, Sisters Ivy and Joan Rosenbaum are the designers. Now, where did they learn their trade? I based them on the research I did, which started at the Jewish Museum, because that whole area, and probably Flinders Lane is the same, was really created by refugees. And one of the, um, or several of the stories I heard, were about actually quite wealthy uh, Jewish refugees on board the ship, learning to sew, realising that they needed to find a trade. Uh, they had a great, they had great taste, they had great sense of fashion. And um, so they, they learned on board the mm-hmm. ship and then they can just start their own little business and off they go. Well, the uh, designers, the owners, the salesman, the bookkeeper and the secretary, they're all upstairs. Downstairs, Gloria Nuttall is the factory supervisor. But what would she like to do in her personal and professional life? In her personal... Oh, she'd like to be upstairs with the Queen Bees. <laughs> you nearly had me then. Many, many years ago in my backpacking days, I worked in a clothing factory and I was a Queen Bee working in the office where we had the big uh, stock cards and the huge ledger machine. 
and the, I heard the girls in the factory referred to us as the Queen Bees. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, social hierarchy in those bases. We didn't know any factory girls. None of them knew us. And so I could imagine that a, uh, a factory supervisor who started in the factory at 15 might aspire to be upstairs. So Gloria oversees all the cutters, machinists, presses, but Mrs Hazel Bates works in an area all her own. So Hazel is the tea lady and uh, she's one of a number in the book. Uh, she has uh, two kitchens. One is the downstairs kitchen, which is fairly rudimentary, and she puts her trolley together and she serves the factory staff there. Then she goes up to the upstairs uh, kitchen and she serves the management on the Royal Dalton and they obviously have the, the fancy biscuits. And then she takes her trolley down to the other two levels of the business. So she's the only person who has kind of diplomatic immunity to travel through the whole, the whole building. So she knows everything that's going on. In her own tea break, she gathers in the laneway with her friends. It's a cosy of other tea ladies. Who are they? Uh, so there's Betty, who is Hazel's adoring friend. They've, they've been best friends since they worked together on the switchboard in their 20s. Basically, Betty aspires to be Hazel, but is just like the most devoted friend you could have. Irene is sort of a character of her own. She comes from more of a criminal background. Her husband was uh, Fred Tweezer's Turnbuckle, a very well-known safe cracker. She's very useful when they, they start get going. And Merle with her own pretensions. Anyway, they seem to know a lot about what's going on. They're called nosy old biddies. But what is it that Hazel sees? So Hazel is in the laneway one morning and she notices a woman looking from the window of an old bond store that's been abandoned next door. And the woman seems to want to get her attention and she writes something in the dust on the window that captures Hazel's curiosity. Hazel sees this woman physically pushed into a car and then what happens to the building? The building burns down. And what's Hazel's next discovery when she comes back into her own building? The uh, building burns down. She goes into Empire Fashionware to make sure that there's nobody there. It's the middle of the night and she discovers a dead body in accounts. Mr McCracken. Now, Hazel is really worried about the girl. The police don't seem to be. So what do the tea ladies do? Well, the tea ladies start to put their feelers out and they get other tea ladies involved. I sort of imagined a cohort of tea ladies. So Hazel says, look, we need to know more about the fire. Who's the tea lady in the fire station right now? Oh, that's Effie Finch. Let's get her down and see what she's got to say. And there's even a tea lady in the police department that helps out. Yeah, so Mrs Lee is the tea lady in the police station at Surrey Hills. And of course, she has perpetuated the myth there that she doesn't really speak English. So she has access to the files and is able to be a fantastic eavesdrop. Hazel's home life is a little complicated too. She's been married to Bob very happily for five years. What's their weekly schedule? He, like a lot of salesmen at that time, was a travelling salesman. So he is only home on the weekend. And then on Sunday night, he takes the train to Grafton and he sells farmers' goods, gumboots, ropes, tra tractors, everything. Well, we're going to hear a little bit because Hazel gets concerned. 
This is from page 162. In her mind, Hazel travels through the past years searching for any clues that Bob might have been living a fraudulent life. Nothing stands out. He has been a kind and loving husband, absent but also present. She prides herself on reading people accurately, yet has somehow been completely blind to the deception taking place right under her nose. Bob started to have urgent business and can't come home. And then a private detective starts asking Hazel questions. Her lady tea friends, Betty and Irene, help her find out... <laughs> this is such a funny thing, funny incident. It's, it, the, the book is very humorous. So you mentioned Irene's has got criminal abilities, but... And oh, aspirations. <laughs> So they break in. <laughs> yes, so, you know, a locked door never stands in Irene's way. So her first thought is always towards something criminal. So she'll always suggest we could break his kneecaps, we could blackmail him, and then she ropes Betty into breaking into the private investigator's office to get the information. And they do. They're successful, although Betty is constantly concerned about it. We talk about the special skills that Irene has, but Hazel also has special skills. She has a quote, a memory like an elephant and ears to match. <laughs> what is it about Hazel's ears? Well, she doesn't have elephant ears. She has a feeling of vibration in a tingling in her ears when someone's lying. She keeps that very quiet, but it does help her navigate lots of different situations and know who's telling the truth and who's not. Even the detective tells lies. Wow, and she picks that up through her ears. 1965 is a time in Sydney's history when police may have taken bribes from nightclub owners for gambling dens to, or to look the other way. And there is a Russian who heads it all up. Yes, I don't know about the may have, Boris. definitely did. <laughs> Hazel finds out about this Borisyak from the Russian shoemaker. It was his Bentley car that the woman was forced into and she even goes to his strip club with most amusing confrontations. The tea ladies are warned by everybody, forget your detective work. Do they? No, they just can't resist. <laughs> this is also the time of a very special Melbourne Spring racing carnival and a woman called... Jean Shrimpton. People know her name. Why is it so strongly remembered? Well, I actually set it in 1965 because I imagined that this would have been a catastrophic time for the fashion industry. And the more research I did, I discovered it actually was. When Jean Shrimpton, known as the Shrimp, wore that mini dress to the races, it just blew everyone's minds. No stockings, no hat. Yes. <laughs> oh, how disgusting. <laughs> So Empire Fashionware makes samples of the Mary Quant jeans, Shrimpton simple things and do a showing of these colourful new trends to all their customer bases, you know, the, the Myers and the David Jones. What did they think of them? Well, as you can imagine, all the buyers back then were men of a certain age and, uh, yes, one of them suggests they're going into the brothel business they just all thought they were absolutely disgraceful and they looked like tramps. It is a different time. There's nostalgia written all through the book. Smoking menthol cigarettes because they're good for your health. 
the tea ladies wearing smocks and pinnies and offering iced fovos. And of course, what about their own jobs from page 23? I heard the some places getting rid of tea ladies, says Irene. There's a machine they put in and people get their own. I can't see that happening, scoffs Merle. What a waste of everyone's time. And what about the cups and saucers? They use paper cups, says Irene. Betty laughs, paper cups? That'll never catch on. Mind you, I've seen tea in little bags, says Merle. They're catching on too. Tea in a bag, Betty laughs. Well, I never, I can't see the point. <laughs> the tea ladies are a group of older women who team together to solve this pot boiler of kidnap, murder and arson. Author Amanda Hampson has them handling organised crime and standover tactics with humour while taking a nostalgic leaf from the past. <laughs> Are they going to team up again, Amanda Hampson? I've just sent the manuscript for the second book to the publisher the day this one came out. Oh, look, I'm so pleased. that look, There were so many questions I needed to ask those tea ladies. Yeah, and there's so much more story in them. And, yeah, no, I couldn't let them go. Are oh. there as many puns forthcoming? <laughs> I must say the puns were all me. Oh, there's dear me. There's much humour in the, <laughs> yeah. in the uh, book than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, dear me. Jan, yeah, a pot What are you going to call this new book? This one's the Tea Ladies. Well, the working title is The Secret Guild of Tea Ladies. Oh, yes, they needed to get together. Yes. Because there was one of the Tea Ladies that wasn't invited in mm. because she might not have been, oh, Caucasian. Mm. And, oh, that was such but a... But it's, it's quite a trade a being story. the Tea Lady. It, it would be the glue that holds a whole company together, really. Exactly, and I think that, you know, the Tea Ladies have the sense that there's an honour amongst tea ladies and, that, you know, an obligation to do the right thing, but they're also out being very nosy and finding out what's what. Mm. And Jess, have you got another book coming? I do. You know, I've got a few on the go. So Deep is the first in a in a trilogy. So High has just ah. come out. Again, uh -huh. oh. high. Yep. No, again, using that same language. Yeah. Are, are we going low after that or what's uh, the story? And the, and the last one is, is called Lost, actually. So it's um it's taking that idea of um, how we lose things um, in the universe and, and how they come back again. So, yes, plenty more bits and pieces on the go. Oh, well, really ideas exciting. keep coming back as well. We can get into <laughs> abstraction there. So... Jan, it's been quite an entertaining... Oh, I've learnt a lot. Yes. How, how, how's your microbiome and <laughs> fungus and gut? Well, and um, Jess might have gone deep into uh, the world, but Amanda went deep into humour. Thank you. And, well, the psychology of people and what drives them to uh, investigate as well. In Amanda's book, you look at the nostalgia there and even Edith, who was the secretary, was so worried. She was so worried about losing her job. This is from the book. These days, they want pretty young things to brighten up their office. What do they care about shorthand typing speeds? They use dictaphones and the girls just plonk out, out one letter with two fingers while their nail polish is dry.